This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. This is one of those cases that will always interest people. You want to be able to keep looking for new clues and new windows into these stories. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. I love 1920s Hollywood. It was full of glitz, glamour, controversy, and murder. William Mann's wonderful book, Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood, details the story of the mysterious unsolved murder of film director William Desmond Taylor. Did Mann solve Taylor's murder 100 years later? Maybe. So this is 1922, Los Angeles. Set the scene for me. Crime, politics, mobsters, what's happening between the Christian right and Hollywood at the time period? Everybody is side-eyeing everyone else. It's very tension-filled. Yeah, you know, in 1920 to 1922, this was this was the critical period in the development of the Hollywood studio system. So the movies were still only about 10 years old. And yet they had become suddenly in the past decade, this huge money-making enterprise and everyone involved, all of the big wigs in the movie industry, the studio directors, the producers, the directors, the actors, they had all come from nothing. They were immigrants who had come here without any, you know, without any money in their pockets. They had been chauffeurs and showgirls and suddenly they were making more money than they ever dreamed of. So, It seemed as if the good times would never end. And then these scandals began to happen. And this was a period of time where suddenly the the stakes were so high and everybody understood that because the the right wing uh, had been complaining about movies since their inception, saying that um, they were destroying the morals of of the youth. They were giving a wrong impression about what marriage and family meant. You know, in these early movies, women had a tremendous amount of agency and women were making movies and they were directing movies. And this was a period of time where there was a lot of social change going on in the world and it made people nervous. After the war, after World War I, um, which was about the time the movies really took off as a big business, there was this clash in the country between traditional ways, religious ways, and a more secular understanding of the world. You know, Fitzgerald's comment was, you know, after the war, a generation found all gods were dead and faiths and man shaken. So, there was a whole new world out there. This was a period of time, too, also where women get the right to vote. Society was changing, and it made a lot of people nervous. And the movies were reflecting that change. So we saw 
a lot of attempts to censor movies, to get movie houses closed in some cases. People who had brought about prohibition now turned their attention to the movie houses. So there was a considerable amount of tension around this suddenly big, huge, important moneymaker industry. And it was going to spill over into the the larger culture as well. Where does William Desmond Taylor fit into this whole picture in 1922? Well, by 1922, William Desmond Taylor, who had started out as an actor, was one of the most important men in the business. He was a a director for famous players Lasky, which was the uh, biggest movie studio in Hollywood and indeed the world. Um, within a few years, it would become paramount. So we understand that this is a, an organization that's still going, that is, you know, that has been powerful for a very long time. And he was tapped by Adolf Zukor, who was the head of Paramount and the founder of Paramount, uh, to in a sense be the, uh, the defender of the industry. He was the one who was always sent out to speak against censorship, against criticism, saying that, you know, if we show destitution or, or vice in the films, it's not an attempt to sensationalize, but to show the problems of society. So, you know, they took a grand tone to justify their money-making movies about sex. But Taylor was the perfect person to do that. He was uh, articulate. He had a, a very cultured Irish brogue. He was handsome. He was tall. And there was no scandal around his name. He was seen as upstanding. The industry leaned on him, depended on him to to defend the industry. And as well as he made very successful movies, uh, Tom Sawyer, a series of films with Mary Miles Minter. So he was he was riding high in 1922. My second book, American Sherlock, features a forensic scientist who did not work on this case, but he was the central character of the Fatty Arbuckle case. And for people who don't know, and Fatty Arbuckle in 1921 is a an actor who's caught in a scandal because a woman who was an actress went to one of his parties at the St. Francis Hotel and ends up dying, and he goes on trial for manslaughter. But really, the characters come out in that trial, right? Mm. You've got showgirls who are flipping their stories around. You've got people who really are framed as sleazy Hollywood types. Does William Desmond Taylor fit into that world? Is he hanging out with all the showgirls? What's his reputation like in Hollywood? Oh, he couldn't be farther away from that world. Okay. He liked Arbuckle. He he did like Arbuckle. They had a, a great deal of respect for each other. But Taylor was known as a guy who went home after shooting the pictures and read books until the early evening and went to bed early. He was he was not somebody who was a part of that world. His best friend was Mabel Normand, who was a part of that world. And occasionally, Mabel would drag him out to the Coconut Grove to go dancing. But for the most part, he was seen as very proper, very distinguished. You know, he had his cellar, you know, it was prohibition, but he did have his 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 cellar with, filled with uh, bootleg liquor. Um, <laughs> but he wasn't known as a party person. He He would not have been at a party like that. So no real active social life, love life, at least in that way? Well, not publicly. Okay. Taylor did have his secrets. And I like to say one of the things that makes this story 
so interesting is that the like the subcurrent to it is that that everybody had secrets and those secrets would either kill you or save you and taylor came to hollywood with some pretty big secrets he had abandoned his wife and daughter um he had been working in, in in retail in new york city and was bored bored with his life unhappy so he he joined a traveling acting uh, company and abandoned his family and had done so for about 5 years now living on his own and now he's in hollywood having made it big and still hadn't reached out to his wife and daughter wow. so he had this secret he was carrying around and part of the reason that i believe that he left his wife and also that he kept a very low profile in hollywood is i believe he was gay he was almost certainly having a, a relationship with his set decorator uh, george hopkins hopkins later wrote about this in some clarity and some detail in his unpublished memoir and that would explain why taylor you know wasn't down there partying with the rest of them but he kind of you know stayed at home with some close friends and and that too was a secret that he guarded very carefully he was one of the most profitable film directors in hollywood at the time the only other one at paramount who was more uh, successful than he was was cecil b demille so tell me about the scene where we are located when all of this happens in Los Angeles on February 1st, 1922. Taylor lived in a bungalow complex on Alvarado Court, which is right off of Alvarado Street. It was a, a courtyard with several other actors. Edna Purviance lived there. She was, of course, Charlie Chaplin's leading lady. Uh, Douglas McLean, who was a very popular actor, also at Famous Players Lasky, lived there. So it was a a group of movie people, technicians who also lived there. It was very genteel. There wasn't a lot of parties. It was at that time it was a very upscale neighborhood in Los Angeles. And he would ent entertain a few friends occasionally, Mabel Norman often. In fact, she was there the night he died. She was the last person to see him alive. Um but mostly as I said, he was he would be found home sitting there reading books until late at night. And is that where all of this starts is that night? Yes. What actually happened there's a lots of speculation, but I I should probably uh say what we know. And what we know is is that on the morning of February 2nd, it was uh, a very cold morning, an unusually cold morning. There was frost on the the grass, and Henry Peavy, who I'd mentioned as Taylor's uh, valet, he arrived as usual at 7:30 uh to start work. And he noticed as he was coming up the path that the lights were still on because the sun was, you know, it was just rising, so he could see that all the lights in the house were still on, which was very unusual. And then as he got closer, he saw that the door was uh, ajar it was not pulled tight which immediately set off alarms in pv's mind and when he opened the door he saw taylor stretched out on the living room floor clearly dead pv who was could be a bit excitable began to scream and run through the courtyard and waking everybody up and the neighbors came over and went inside determined that he was the taylor was dead and at this point everyone thought he died of natural causes because there was no sign of foul play he was just laying there fully dressed and they felt well he must have had a heart attack or some other kind of seizure and they said well we need to call the cops and pv who had by this point had kind of gotten his senses he said oh no mr taylor always said that if anything ever happened you don't call the cops you call the studio and because of what we were talking about earlier the the stakes that were so high for the studios even if somebody died of natural causes before you let the press in you had to make sure there was nothing in their in their belongings that might embarrass the studio so overcomes 
uh, George Hopkins, who was most likely Taylor's companion, romantic companion, um, and other people from the studio. And they went through Taylor's bungalow and carried off boxes and checkbooks and diaries and, and everything they could find. So by that point, it was okay to let the coroner in. And the coroner comes in and says, well, it looks like natural causes, but you know, we should turn the body over. And the studio director who was there, a man named Charles Eiton, said, no, 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 we don't need to turn the body over. Let's just get him to the morgue. And the coroner insisted, and they turned him over. And sure enough, there was he was lying in a pool of blood, hmm. and there was a bullet lodged in his neck. So now it's it's murder. And by this time, the, the uh, reporters are all outside. You know, and it's so interesting when I research this period— Unlike today, the reporters had access to crime scenes. They just walked in, you know, and they mm. went through things on their own. And, and, and the police and the, everyone expected that. So there were reporters in there when, when the blood was found. And, and so containing this was no longer possible. Are they finding upon investigation that there are signs of a break-in? Do they think immediately this is some sort of home invasion? No, there's no sign of a break-in. The back door is still locked from the inside. So whoever came in, came in through the the front door, uh, which was unlocked. And there was, the place was not in shambles. The the only thing that was, that seemed out of place was there was a chair that was kind of athwart Taylor's leg. But other than that, the room was neat. He had his wristwatch. He had, he had some, he had a ring that was not stolen. However, he did have a roll of cash. It was probably about $500 or, or more. And that was gone. But if the killer was there to rob him, police immediately said, you know, well, then why not take the ring? Why not take the yeah. wristwatch? Why not go through the desk? Because there were other valuables there. So, so robbery even from the start, was not seen as a motive. Are they dusting for fingerprints? Because we know that that was available. I know from Fatty Arbuckle, that was very available in that time period. They certainly did. They certainly did. But, you know, as I mentioned, by this point, by the time the cops actually did that, there were so many fingerprints across that. There There were the neighbor's fingerprints. There were the reporter's fingerprints. There were the cop's fingerprints. It turned out to be useless. So is there a reaction from George Hopkins, who you believe was his partner in some way, or at least a romantic partner? Is there an emotional reaction or or anything public happening? I wish we knew. I mean, because that's one of the great stories that you have to wonder about. Um, Hmm. In his memoir, he did write how difficult it was for him to stand there and and look down at this body of this man that he had loved Um, and and not to be able to acknowledge it, not to be able to say this man wasn't just my boss. Mabel Normand, however, who was Taylor's good friend and clearly knew about George, she did at the funeral, uh, George was sitting alone and Mabel did gesture for him to come sit with her. So I think, you know, just those little bit details, you begin to say perhaps there was some understanding what he might have been going through. So at this point, the studio has to admit that this is a murder and they have no suspects and there's no sign of a break-in. It doesn't look random. The easy things to get, which any robber would know what to do or have been left on the table except for some money. And the police say, we have to investigate this. What is the dynamic between the police and their investigation and Zucker and these people who are the power players in Hollywood who have a lot to lose by this? 
Oh yeah, they have a tremendous amount to lose. At the uh, the very day that Taylor's murder is announced on the front page of the uh, Los Angeles papers, it's sharing headlines with the Arbuckle case, which the jury had just you know deadlocked for the second time. So mm-hmm. at this point, you see it in Zucker's action. Zucker's on a train. He's a, he's based in New York. He's on a train out to Los Angeles almost immediately. This is crisis mode. This is really um, immediately the reformers, people like the Lord's Day Alliance. They're jumping all over, saying, "Look, we need to, we need, we need to, you know, censor these this place." And mm. they're finding allies with the federal government because the federal government had already been looking to regulate the new movies as as um, violating antitrust laws. Paramount, Lowe's were buying up the theaters and there were calls for regulation and government regulation of the movie industry. And, and so they find allies with the right-wing religious and civics groups saying, yeah, let's regulate them for that, but also for their morality. So this is, this is a moment where People like Adolf Zukor and the others realized that all of this fortune that they had built up might come crashing down. So there's a lot of pressure from the studios on the police not to pursue this. Yeah. Sometimes the police cooperate. Other times they don't. I mean, the, the police in, in the Taylor case sometimes get a bad rap. I think they did the best they could. But the studio had gotten in there and taken away anything that might have given them a true lead on who might have done this. So they start to investigate, and I think, you know, even police in the 1920s would start to think, okay, well, we need to start with his inner circle. Right. And they start investigating. Who do they start with? Are we starting with Mabel? Is that who we go with, his closest friend besides George? Yes, absolutely. Mabel is the first suspect. Um, She was there the night before. Investigators started asking around. There had been a quarrel between Mabel and Taylor that several people had witnessed. So why was she there that night? Henry Peavy had seen them quarreling before he left for the night. So when he left, he had seen Mabel and Taylor quarreling. So he was very suspicious of Mabel. However, Mabel was quickly determined not to be a suspect. They they did check her out. They they searched her apartment. They found that she, her gun didn't match the the bullet that had killed Taylor. But she remained, you know, a person of interest for other reasons. She had, you know, everyone knew that she had. Uh, recently gotten sober. Um, she had gone to rehab. Taylor had helped pay for it for her. Um, she had kicked the drug habit. You know, she had this pretty elaborate drug land connection that had infiltrated this movie studios. And Taylor had been working actually with the U.S. attorney to ferret them out, wow. to try to find these drug dealers and to get them out of the studio. So there was a, there was some thought within the LAPD that maybe, in fact, one of Mabel's drug contacts had killed Taylor as a sort of revenge or something. Um, so Mabel, even though she was very quickly eliminated as a suspect, remained in the shadow of the investigation really for the next several years. Did they look at this and think, based on interactions with gangsters, you know, knowing what they know about the level of professional hitmen, did they think that this looked like a professional hit or a crime of passion? How are they categorizing this murder, do you know? Some of the speculation was being done by the Hearst newspapers. Of course. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, this is what we think did it. You know, the police 
right from the beginning, did not feel this was a, a mob hit because it didn't didn't bear any of the signs of that. Okay. It did seem like a crime of passion. Even the trajectory of the bullet through Taylor's body was interesting because it it was fired into his his lower right side and it traveled up through his body and got lodged in his neck right behind his ear. So this is a very unusual trajectory for a, a bullet to go through a body. How would that have happened if it was a, you know, a mob hit, which usually is pretty straightforward? Yeah. Um, it did seem like a, a crime of passion. Interestingly, all of the women in Taylor's life, Mabel, his um, most frequent leading lady, Mary Miles Minter, were all about five foot two. So, you know, it's conceivable to someone embracing Taylor, who was much shorter than he was. He was six feet, mm-hmm. putting a gun in his side. That gun might have gone gone up to his neck. So it was pretty early on seen as most likely a crime of passion. What is the caliber of gun? What kind of weapon are we talking about? Is this a lady's handgun that can be concealed very easily? No, it was it was a 38, oh. an old model 38, which is actually I think a significant detail it was helped me when I when I came up with some possible solutions that it was it was an old model 38 and the bullets were soft-nosed and there was the ammunition was also old it was not like the the current the most current ammunition at the time i'm not a gun expert but i i know that the police said this is there aren't a lot of these guns around is what they said is it associated with the military or the police or would this be somebody's father who had it years ago and it was taken out of the house it was used in the spanish american war so they have looked at mabel and said Uh, She's got some connections to the underworld, but we're going to let it go for now. Who is the next person they focus on? The next one was Taylor's former valet, a man by the name of Edward Sands. Um, He had preceded Henry Peavy in the position. And Sands was a very good suspect. And And I think he still is a good suspect. He was working under an assumed name. He was using a fake Cockney accent. He was actually from Ohio. Wait, what? <laughs> right. <laughs> Why did he do that? He just thought he'd get a job more easily if he sounded English? Yeah, like, it, like uh, yeah, you know, valets are supposed to be English, I guess. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, he was always changing his name, always going around the country, getting different jobs because he was always being fired. Or when he was in the military, he was in World War One. He was always being court-martialed. Uh, so he had a lot of aliases throughout his career. Hmm. And when he he left Taylor's employ, it was while Taylor was away, actually in New York, making up with his wife and daughter. During that time, Sands took Taylor's car, smashed it up, drank all his liquor, and then stole jewelry and some clothing. So Sands seemed like a really good suspect, especially because it seemed as if in Taylor's last month, he was being blackmailed. Hmm. And Sands seemed like a good suspect because he actually knew that Taylor was not his employer's real last name. His real last name was Tanner. He was he was known as William Dean Tanner. Uh, Sands had discovered this. And so the blackmail notes that came to, to Taylor were addressed to William Dean Tanner. Huh. So if this was, in fact, Sands doing this, he seems like a possible suspect, though it was never clear what his motive would be to kill him, yeah. unless it was somehow, again, a crime of passion, like, give me some more money, I refuse, and, and they just shot him. 
But if you look at it, it seems like Sand's whole motive throughout all of it is money, right? Mm-hmm. Why not just take the jewelry? Why not take the two or three extra steps? That, to me, doesn't make any sense. If this guy, his whole motivation is money. Right. And the trajectory is weird. It is weird. Maybe he would be on the ground and shooting up in self-defense if there's an argument or, hmm, I don't know. Yeah, it could be. And he, he was shorter. I think he was only about five six, But uh, he was a good suspect, but it didn't clinch it. Who's after him? Who's after Sands? Well, then come the most popular suspects, which would be Mary Miles Minter and her mother, Charlotte Shelby. Now, Mary Miles Minter was Taylor's leading lady in a number of very successful films. She had started as a star on the Broadway stage when she was about 11 and her mother was passing her off as 16. You know, you look at her story now, especially through modern eyes, and you realize how sexualized she was as such a young girl and and the the lasting damage that that did to her. She was always living in a sort of a fantasy world. And even as a as a movie star, she became very um well-known as being this sexy kind of dangerous maybe too young girl who was paired with much older men. Mary Miles Minter was a popular suspect because the newspapers were really they were pushing this story along. The story stayed alive in the public imagination because of the fact that every day the, the Examiner and the Herald Express came out with huge headlines with, you know, latest clue in Taylor killing. And what better clue could there be if, than if it evolved a sexy young woman? And so people thought, well, perhaps Mary did it, but why would Mary have done it? It became clear, it became revealed, and, and this is fact, that Mary was in love with Taylor absolutely smitten. And she was convinced that Taylor loved her too, because Taylor was very kind. He was very gracious to her. He didn't dismiss her the way some people did. She was convinced that he loved her, even though he said things to her like, Mary, I am December and you are May. Hmm. You know, there could be nothing between us. But Mary still had this dream. And it infuriated her mother, Charlotte Shelby, that Mary would be so dependent on this man when, of course, Charlotte had been the one to control Mary's career ever since Mary was a little girl. And she didn't like other people coming in and putting other ideas into her daughter's head. So Charlotte was always very antagonistic towards Taylor. And in fact, at one point on the set in front of witnesses had threatened to kill him. She said, if you ever come near my daughter, I will kill you. She had a gun. Uh, People knew that. She knew she had a gun. So Charlotte becomes perhaps the most popular suspect Mary was a suspect, too, to an extent, you know, she was short enough that if Taylor had her in embrace, she, you know, she could put the gun against his side and that trajectory would make a lot of sense. And it does appear, at least from George Hopkins' memoir, that Mary discovered that there may have been some kind of a relationship with Hopkins. She saw them at the at the opera and seemed to be very upset. Hmm. But it was Charlotte who, the lead detective on the case, Ed King, he was convinced that it was Charlotte Shelby. I think for a number of reasons. One, the district attorney at the time, Thomas Woolwine, was friends with Charlotte. And I believe that Woolwine knew that Charlotte was not guilty, but he knew that in some cases she was going to be made to look guilty. So he discouraged his investigators from pursuing that line. And in doing so, that made a lot of the investigators suspicious. Why is the DA telling us not to look into Charlotte Shelby? Hmm. But the other reason I think that Charlotte became such uh, the popular suspect, everyone in Hollywood started to say, well, you know, she must have done it. It's because she was a powerful woman in Hollywood when they didn't really accept powerful women in Hollywood. 
People have called her a monster for doing things that Adolf Zucker did all the time. And they called him ambitious or smart or crafty. They told, they called Charlotte, you know, every other name under the book. Charlotte could have been a very powerful producer in Hollywood. She knew how to make movies. She knew how to sell movies. She was never given that opportunity because she was a woman. And so I believe that in many ways, her reputation in town as a, as a woman who took no crap from anyone, who actually went head to head with Zucker at one point and demanded that Mary get a, a million dollar contract. And Zucker wow. said, I've, I've never paid a million dollar contract. And she said, well, then you won't get married. And she won. Charlotte won. So actually, I have a lot of respect for Charlotte Shelby, even though she was probably hell to work with. But so were so most of the men in Hollywood at the time. But they don't get these reputations. Yeah. So I think that's one of the reasons Charlotte became such a popular suspect. Knowing that she had such an acerbic personality or assertive personality and, and made people uncomfortable and she carried a gun, do you think that William Desmond Taylor would have let her into his house if there are no signs of a break-in? Or is there any way she could have accessed the house without him, a key or anything? Well, we do have a story that was reported um, to investigators that at one point she did go to Taylor's house and she did uh, knock on his door. She did have a gun with her. She admitted having a gun with her. She didn't know where Mary was. And she assumed that she was at Taylor's house. And Taylor did invite her in. And he said, you can see she's not here. Charlotte left because she was frustrated not finding Mary. So I do believe he would have invited her in. My question always with Charlotte Shelby is, what would she gain from killing Taylor? Yeah. She was a woman who, if she didn't like the way things were going, she had other ways of dealing with you. She would have gone to the top. She would have gone to Zucker and said, what's going on with Taylor? I can't believe that simply a fear that he was somehow going to steal Mary away from her would prompt her into killing him. Even if she did in a moment of passion, she had to know that it would destroy everything she had worked so hard to create. You know, if, if that were discovered, you know, Mary's career would be ruined. Charlotte would be in jail. Yeah. You know, she became a popular suspect. And for a very long time, many people assumed that it was Charlotte Shelby. I just don't think her personality allows for it. She wasn't an impulsive person. She was very calculating. Hmm. And to think that she kind of went over in a, in a mad rage and shot Taylor dead just never convinced me. Is there no other forensic evidence in this case? There's no hair. There's nothing left behind. I mean, anything that could have been tested because there were some resources in 1922, forensically, that could have been used. Yes, there were. There was several strands of hair on the suit in which he was killed. They were never tested for whatever reason hmm. until one of the newspaper reporters figured out, well, if we can get copies of that hair, maybe we can find out ourselves. And so there was a surreptitious investigation, which was carried out by, I think, a, a, a newsboy who was paid a few extra dollars to go in and get hairs from Mary's hairbrush, oh. in which then Detective Ed King compared to the hairs that were on the, the suit, and he claimed that they were the same. And so if Mary's hairs were on the lapel of his jacket, what does that mean? I'm still not sure what that proved because Mary did go to see Taylor the day before he died. She yeah. was distraught. He hugged her. He hugged her. Yeah. So what does that prove? But of course, somehow those hairs seem to indict Charlotte Shelby even more, which makes no sense. 
You know, they knew so little in some ways because this is the Wild West of forensics, this time period that we're talking about. Right. They knew so little. You know, when Oscar Heinrich got on the stand to talk about Fatty Arbuckle and the would-be victim in this case, he said, see the handprints. You can tell it's a man on top of a woman. This is signs of a struggle, which is such BS. It was so imperfect. And to then take a little bit of forensic information and say, here is a narrative that goes with it was believable in the 1920s, and we can't do that now. Now we know. Right. But you can see that little bit of information, which I think they would have only been able to determine the race of the person. That was it. There was no, I don't even know if they could tell the difference between male and female from what I remember in the 1920s. No, I, I think you're right. I mean, and I think that's why so much of this case, even from the very start, was all based on circumstantial evidence. And so what we're left with and what I was left with in, in trying to make some sense of this was to say, OK, using this evidence, whether it's circumstantial or not, how much of it is easily disproven? Yeah. How much of it contradicts itself so we can eliminate it? And, and in fact, I think one of the things that I think is often overlooked or not considered all that important, was there was one eyewitness to the killing. That was Taylor's next-door neighbor, Faith McLean. She was the wife of the actor Douglas McLean. And she remembers on the night of the shooting that she heard what she thought was a a car backfire. And she looked out her, her front door window, and directly across from her bungalow was Taylor's. And she saw a man come out of Taylor's apartment. So this is immediately after the gunshot. A man. A man. And she said the man walked out of the the apartment. She said he was wearing like a hat pulled down over his um, face a little bit. So she couldn't get a clear view of his face. But she said he had a rather prominent nose. He looked like somebody they would call from central casting to play like a gangster. And she said he kind of nodded as he passed her. So he wasn't like he was rushing away. He kind of nodded. And then they said, how tall was he? And she kind of compared it. And it turned out that she was saying he was about 5'6 or 5'7". As I said, Charlotte Shelby was five foot one. And this man was also heavy. He was stocky. If this was Charlotte Shelby, she would have had to put on a nose prosthetic. She would have had be walking on stilts and wearing padded clothes to disguise herself as a man. Because even with that evidence, even with that evidence, people still said, oh, well, it was simply a man, a woman dressed as a man. I don't know where they get that from, but because it makes literally, it's very impractical when you think about that. Does this man fit the description of Edward Sands that we're talking about? In some ways he did, and which why it makes this interesting, because um, it was noted that he was about the same height as Edward Sands. The problem with that is, is that even though he was in the dark, you couldn't see him that well. Faith McLean had seen Edward Sands for more than a year, every single day, Hmm. coming out of that same door. And she said it was not him. Okay. And they said, well, are you sure? She said, well, I, you know, how, how sure can I be? Okay. So we have this list of suspects and who are the police? We know the media really likes Charlotte Shelby, you know, who goes there in a fit of passion arguing over her young daughter and shoots him and then goes because that's part of her personality and everybody fears her. Who do the police think is really involved here? It was divided. Many of the uh, the investigators did not give up on Sands. Hmm. They believed Sands must have been involved just because he was that kind of character. 
Fairly early in the investigation, a body is found in Massachusetts that is identified as Sands, but never 100% confirmation. And I think the newspapers pushed that this really was Sands so that they could continue the Charlotte Shelby marathon, Mm -hmm. whereas many of the police weren't 100% convinced with that. But an awful lot of the the cops did believe it was Charlotte. But I think what cinched it for them was the fact that Woolwine kept saying, lay off of Charlotte Shelby. Hmm. There are stories that Woolwine and Charlotte Shelby were having an affair. That's possible. You know, they were friends. But the fact that he kept saying lay off them, I think really did motivate a lot of the investigators. Well, let me go through the list real quick because I think you can add to it, right? So we have Mabel Normand, who is the woman who was in recovery, his really good friend. They had argued Charlotte Shelby because of her daughter, Mary Miles Minter, who was a teenager who was in love with William Desmond Taylor. And then you've got Edward Sands, who was an assistant to him, a valet, as you had mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I keep throwing George Hopkins. I'm going to let it go because I know you're convinced this is not. (laughs) I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, that's... If you're really looking at a crime of passion, right. you know, and this is a secret affair, this just seems like a no-brainer, and they're in this in a studio system together. But it doesn't sound like that lines up with what you found. Is there anyone else? I think there might be one or two other people I'm missing. There are a couple of other minor figures who, who came through. There was one that Taylor had served in World War One. He was a British citizen, so he served with the Canadian Army. Um, and apparently there was some conflict he had with one of his men and the man, you know, vowed vengeance against him. So there was talk about that, that there was somebody had returned from the the war against him. Taylor's brother had briefly worked for him and then also disappeared. His brother also left his wife back in New York. Hmm. But really the next suspect doesn't emerge for about 40 years. That's actually how I got involved with this story. What happened in 1964 was there was an old woman um, in the Hollywood Hills, who was friends with a, a family next door who always, you know, took her over meals. And one day she was having pains in her chest and began calling for help. And the, the teenage son of the family ran over to help her. Um, he knew her as Mrs. Lewis. And she said that, you know, she needed a Catholic priest that she needed to confess before she died. And he said, what do you want to confess? And she said, well, I killed William Desmond Taylor. Hmm. Now, lots of people had come forward over the last 40 years saying they had killed William Desmond Taylor. He didn't even know who William Desmond Taylor was. This is 1964. He's listening to the Beatles. He doesn't know who William Desmond Taylor is. But it turns out after she died and he went through her papers that she was a, a movie star, uh, had been a silent, silent actress. And her name at the time was Margaret Gibson. She later changed the name to Patricia Palmer. She would have been written off as just one more crazy person confessing to the murder. But the fact that she did so so late when nobody even remembered the case was interesting. And I discovered her story on the website Taylorology, which was an amazing, wonderful collection of everything to do with the Taylor case, um, maintained by a really remarkable man by the name of Bruce Long. Everything, you know, there were, there were the inquest files, there were newspaper articles. Hmm. And I, you know, at a period of time when I was not all that excited about a book I was working on. So at night I was doing this other research and I read the story of Margaret Gibson and I said, what's going on? Who was she? And as it turns out that I discovered it was that she actually had made pictures with Taylor. She knew him. Hmm. They had been on the road together in Colorado before he became a director when they were both in um, repertory companies. And there were so many, so many parallels. It's 
after his death, she had always been a B-picture actress, never at a big studio. But right after his death, she's hired by Paramount, by Adolf Zukor, to co-star with none other than Mary Miles Minter in a big-budget Paramount film, the first really big-budget film she ever did. And I said, okay, there's something going on here. And, and so I began digging more. And it seemed that the reason she changed her name was that she was arrested was because of sex work that she had been doing in in Little Tokyo back in 1917 or so. And so she had to change her name. There was too much going on about Margaret Gibson for me to just dismiss her story. I said, there's something here. I don't know if she killed him. It doesn't make sense because she was only 5'1". So she doesn't fit the description of the killer either. But there's something here. And... That's what I spent most of my time researching. Okay, so where are we now in 2023 where this has become an enduring mystery? People still talk about this case. I've read about it. So where do we stand now? I think that this is one of those cases that will always interest people, will always fascinate people. And just like Jack the Ripper And just like so many of the Black Dahlia, we don't really want them solved. You want to be able to keep looking for new clues and and new windows into these stories. So the solution that I came up with in my book, Tinseltown, was the only one that doesn't contradict the other available evidence. You know, the way that Charlotte Shelby does or Edward Sands or Mabel Normand. But we can never prove it for sure. Hmm. As you said, there's, there is no forensic evidence. So, you know, we can't find that unless, you know, something remarkable was found. So where is it now? I think it's one of those great Hollywood stories that people tell and discuss and, and delve into. Um, it, it is one of the great Hollywood stories. So what is the lesson learned here from this story, do you think? I mean, what do we take away from all of this mess about this man who seemed to be doing a lot of good in an industry that was under fire, and in some cases, rightly so, you know, in a time period where this country was just in flux in every direction you can think of? What did we learn from this? Well, I can tell you what Hollywood would learn from it. In the five years that I cover in my book, 1920 to 1925, which is the the height of the Taylor scandal and also of the Arbuckle scandal and several other scandals of the period, we see Hollywood come into being. So Hollywood, as we know, it didn't exist in 1920, but it was very much fully formed by 1925. You know, the studio system was in place, a series of vertical integration, the studios owned movie theaters, there was a a centralized, top-to-bottom factory uh, system to make movies, to distribute them, to publicize them, to show them. And that lasted until the 1960s. And there was also a sense of what could be shown and what couldn't be shown and how stars were supposed to interact with the public and how they were supposed to behave, how women were supposed to behave, how men were supposed to behave. And that all came into shape in those those first five years of the 1920s. And without the scandals, I wonder, I wonder if we would have seen a different Hollywood and and therefore a different America in many ways, because, you know, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin tried United Artists, which was a very different way of making movies. It wasn't a top-down system. It wasn't a controlled vertical integration. It was about the artists having the say in what they do and how they make movies and what, and what those movies are all about. 
And that system, while it continued in some ways, was overshadowed by the very business capitalist uh, system that Adolf Zucker primarily set up in the early 1920s. So what would have happened if the scandals didn't happen and artists and creative people continued to have greater sway in how movies are made and how they're sold? I, I don't know. But because the scandals happened, Hollywood needed that kind of control, needed that kind of rigid production schedule. This was a period of time in which the Hayes Code was established. Um, Hayes was just coming in when when Taylor was killed. You know, the series of, of codes were enacted throughout the 1920s. And by 1930, we get the production code, which is then enforced, rigidly enforced by 1934 and is for the next 40 years. And all of that dates back to these scandals. Arbuckle, Taylor, Wallace Reed, Mabel Norman, uh, Olive Thomas, others uh, in, in the early 1920s. And if if they hadn't happened, if, if Hollywood hadn't felt so threatened that so much was at stake, I wonder if the movies would have been different and if the American conversation would have been different. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.